27. We are very close now to finishing the book of Acts. Just to remind you uh, of where we are in the story, uh, for two years, after two years of imprisonment and trials and politics, Paul uh, has appealed his case to Caesar, which means he must be taken to Rome so that Caesar can hear his case. And what happens in chapter 27 is that Luke gives us this play-by-play, very detailed, of the the perilous journey to Rome. Uh, see, what happens in chapter 27, and we're going to look at some segments of it this morning, is that Paul is loaded on a ship with other prisoners. In fact, uh, Kelly, if you'll put up the uh, map that's on the screen, you may have one of these in the back of your Bible, but this is kind of very helpful as we look at all these different place names. But what happens in chapter 27 is that Paul is carried with a bunch of other prisoners uh, from uh, Caesarea uh, over across the Mediterranean Sea on his way to Rome. Uh, And along the way, he gets caught in a terrible storm, tossed around at sea for two weeks, shipwrecked, washed up on shore, and to top it all off, bitten by a poisonous snake. That's Paul's trip uh, before he finally arrives in Rome, still in chains. Uh, And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up the story uh, after they have already left. Uh, It's about October uh, A.D. 60, um, and it is a dangerous time of year to be sailing. Uh, Winter is approaching uh, and the, the, the seas are treacherous. In fact, Paul has warned them what they've done is uh, the winds have already pushed them off course. And so they have sailed underneath the island of Crete, hoping to at least winter there and stay there. Um, and so that's where we're going we're gonna to pick up the story. Paul has warned them not to continue, uh, but they choose to keep going. So let's give our attention to God's word, Acts 27, verse 12. You're welcome to follow along uh, in your Bible. You can uh, look at the map, whatever would be most helpful to you. But Acts 27, uh, starting in verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, 
Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete. Now listen. Just because the Apostle Paul says, I told you so, doesn't mean you get to say, I told you so. Okay? But, uh, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Let's drop down to verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they didn't recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow, excuse me, the bow stuck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your goodness and pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Lord, give us new hearts, transform us from the inside out. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our outline for today's sermon comes from an 18th century poem or hymn written by a man named William Cooper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. The hymn is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. You've probably heard me quote it before. It's a favorite. Uh, But this is the line that I think uh, speaks to uh, what we're going to look at today. And, And Cooper writes this. He says, Trust not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I'll say that again. Trust not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now, uh, before you think those words were written by an eternal optimist, 
uh, or a hardened stoic. You need to know that William Cooper suffered most of his life with debilitating depression. Uh, He tried to commit suicide uh, three times and was institutionalized. Uh, After his release, uh, he became friends with one John Newton, whom you may know wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, among others, including the one we sang, we opened the service with. Um, But even after coming to know Christ and befriending um, mature Christians like John Newton, Cooper still struggled uh, for most of his life. In fact, in fact, he um, when he died, um, he was still in what they would call a, a dark temper. Uh, and so William Cooper was somebody who knew a lot about darkness. He knew a lot about trials and troubles and storms. Um, but he also knew a good bit about the mercy of Jesus in the midst of those storms. So as we, uh, so I thought his words would be fitting for us this morning to look at this kind of twofold story of Paul, and even how it speaks to our own trials and storms. Right. So this morning we're going to look first at the frowning providences of life, uh, that we need to be ready for that frowning providence for those dark storm clouds. Uh, but we also need to remember in the midst of those frowning providences that God hides a smiling face. So we want to remember God's smile of grace. Uh, all in all, the, the, the main idea is this, that whatever your circumstances may look like, whatever your situation may be, remember that God is committed to his people and to his promises. Whatever, whatever your immediate circumstances may be, remember that God is committed to his people and to his promises. So first, let's talk about uh, what it means to be ready for a frowning providence. Uh, A few weeks ago, our catechism question dealt with providence. What is providence? It's God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Which is easy to affirm when the sun is shining and the seas are calm, right? But when the storm clouds gather... When the winds are howling, when the waves are taller than your boat, well, then providence can take a nasty turn and we begin to doubt whether or not God is, in fact, in control. Now, I've only ever been lost at sea just once, uh, and I was only about 100 yards off the shore, and the sun was shining, and I had a life jacket. And it wasn't so much a shipwreck as operator error. Uh, But when that little sailboat flipped over, I decided it was a good time to swim for the shore uh, rather than stay out in the water. Um, But even when the sun is shining and the waves are relatively calm, the ocean is a scary place for a 13-year-old boy who can't touch the bottom. Uh, when the cur- current is pulling against your every, you're trying to get in and the ocean keeps trying to pull you out. And that's nothing compared to what Paul is facing. Uh, Luke says, tells us that they get caught in a tempestuous wind. The word is typhoon. These are hurricane gales that are driving their boat out to sea. In fact, they're so worried that they're going to be driven south to the coast of Africa, which is why they drop this uh, sail or anchor or whatever it is that, that keeps them, uh, that, that tries to slow their progress. Uh, and you notice that the sailors do everything they can, right? They, they secure the lifeboat. They, they strap the hull together. 
Uh, they, again, they lower some kind of anchor down to slow themselves. They, they even try to lighten the boat by throwing over all the unnecessary cargo, uh, all the tools and tackle that, that aren't necessary for that moment. Right? All, the, all the equipment they don't need, they toss overboard. And still, after two weeks, it says two, they go two weeks without seeing the sun or the stars. And if you've ever sailed or been on a boat... Uh, well, before the days of GPS, that was what the stars were. You needed the sun and the stars to tell you where you were. And so not only, uh, not only are they in the midst of a storm, but they're totally disoriented. They don't even know which way they're going. And we see that in verse 20, after two weeks of that, even the professional sailors give up. They have abandoned all hope of ever being saved. And I imagine you probably know how they feel. Even if you've never been at sea for a hurricane or survived a tornado, you've experienced other storms. You know what it means to lose a job. Maybe you've received a diagnosis uh, that was life-threatening. Maybe you've lost a child or you've lost a marriage. You know what it feels like to be caught in the storm. One uh, brother described it this way. He said, I feel like I'm being pulled through a keyhole. You ever felt that? You know, you, you know there's light on the other side, but you're in the, the midst of the squeeze. You feel like you're being pulled through a keyhole. Why does God do that? And make no mistake, that's the right question to ask. We do believe that God is in control of the storms that he sends our way. And that, I realize that's uncomfortable. The alternative would be that God is powerless in the face of the storms and trials he sends our way. And we certainly don't believe that. The Bible doesn't give us that impression. Uh, the first lines of Cooper's hymn says that uh, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footstep in the sea and rides upon the storm. That's, that's the God of the Bible. And so the question we have to ask is, why? Why does God do this? And the answers to that, actually, there, there, there could be several. I can't answer every specific uh, instance in your life or in my life in fact um, oftentimes the answer is I don't know um, again that's why Cooper wrote uh, God moves in a mysterious way unbeknownst to us but let me suggest maybe a couple of reasons a couple of the ways that God uses the storms that he sends us first and maybe even most important Storms remind us of our own limitations, our own weaknesses, our own fallibility. I can't think of anything worse than being stuck in the ocean uh, during a typhoon or a cyclone or a hurricane, right? At, at least on land. I mean, we, we've, we've had tornadoes in our community now for a couple of weeks, and yes, those are terrifying, but usually they come to an end relatively quickly, and you're still left standing on solid ground. So I, I'm trying to imagine being stuck out on the water 
we don't breathe water, right? And all I've got between me and the, and the cold, dark deep is a boat, which looked pretty big when we left until the, the swells are now taller than the mast, that the, that the guy on the crow's nest at the very top doesn't even see the crest of the wave, right? That's, that's terrifying. And I imagine in that moment, nothing is probably better designed to make us feel small than that. And that's what storms do. They remind us of our own limitations. They remind us of our own smallness uh, before the face, before the power of God. And that's important. Because what they can also do, what storms can also do, is reveal to us our sinfulness. When, when, when you're left without any other option, your, your idols are exposed, right? It's, you finally see what it is that you're trusting in. You know, when, when you get that diagnosis from the doctor, uh, and, maybe, and maybe you were in perfectly good health, you've taken care of your body, you, you eat right, you exercise, all those things, but you still get that diagnosis. And you realize, hmm, I'm not in control of my body. Now listen, I said last week, it's important, exercise, diet, we, that's good, those are all good things, right? But we are not the masters of our destiny. We do not control our fate. We are the ones who are out of control, and that's important for us because what storms also do if we have a if we have a soft heart is they press us close to jesus in philippians three ten, uh, paul says that he wants to know christ and the power of his resurrection and now we could all say that we all want to know the power of jesus's resurrection who doesn't want to come back to life but here's what paul says next and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul wants to know Jesus so well that he realizes in order to do so, he has to also share in Jesus' sufferings. He, he's in the fellowship of his sufferings so that uh, he will become like him in his death. You see, the way that we grow in likeness to Jesus is not from the top of the mountain, but from the bottom of the valley. It's when we follow Jesus down into death that we become more like Jesus. But when you, but when you follow Jesus down into death, it feels like being pulled through a keyhole. You're being squeezed. God sends storms so that we will learn dependence and, and follow Jesus. So the question is, what, what do you do when... It seems like God is just piling on. When, when the storm just doesn't stop, when it's, been, when it's been two weeks since you've seen the stars and the sun, when you feel disoriented, when you feel helpless, you've done everything you can and you're out of options and now you just wait. What do you do? Where does your heart go? Well, it's in that moment that uh, I want to encourage you to remember God's smile of grace. Uh, and, and Paul shows us a little bit of what it looks like to do that. Because here we see Paul, despite all that's going on around him, Paul stands firm and displays faith and even is able to offer encouragement in the midst of the storm. How? 
how does he do that? In the midst of a rocking boat, where, where is Paul planting his feet? Well, look at, look at verses 22 through 25. Paul says, Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, Paul's not a professional sailor. Uh, so I imagine that all the sailors on the boat were probably just giving a little side eye, like, sure, whatever, buddy. Then Paul says this, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. That's, our, that's, that's the first place that Paul plants his foot. God's ownership. You know, we often talk about religion and God in terms of personal preference. I choose to believe this. This is my view. I think this. But for Paul, the language is not of preference. It's of ownership. God says, I mean, Paul says, the God to whom I belong, or literally, of whom I am. For Paul, his primary identity is that he is owned by God. He doesn't have to be afraid because he knows God owns him. He belongs to God. My friend Davey, uh, when, his, when he was younger and his parents would drop him off at the mall, they would always, uh, before he got out of the car, they would always say, remember whose you are. And maybe your parents said something similar. But it, that's interesting, right? It's not a command. It's not be nice, be kind, behave. All those would have been appropriate things to say, but they chose to say, remember whose you are. Remember, first and foremost, your identity and allow your actions to flow from that. That's Paul. He remembers whose he is. He remembers that God is committed to his people. And then a second thing, a second place he stands in verse 24. He says, don't be, uh, the, the angel says to Paul, don't be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And so the second thing, the second place that Paul puts his foot is he remembers God's promise. God promised. This is now the second time that God has promised Paul he will get him to Rome. So, so Paul has a rock-solid promise that he's got to get to Rome. But just so there's no doubt, God sends an angel to verify that for Paul and even says, and hey, all those other guys, all, all 275 other people, they're going to they're gonna escape as well. And, and Paul has walked with God long enough to know that he cannot break his promises, that he will keep his promises. Now, I don't know about you, but, you, but I, I've never had that vision. Right? Most of us uh, will probably never have this direct kind of revelation from God. We, won't, we probably won't have this vision or this dream that's you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt. But we do have other promises of God in Scripture. We have Jesus' promise in Matthew 28 that he will uh, be with us all the way to the end of the age. Jesus promises to his disciples, I'll be with you all the way to the end of the age. Uh, Paul tells the Philippian believers 
that the God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So we have multiple promises in Scripture. Throughout the Bible, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you can rest assured that as long as God has something for you to do, you're not going anywhere. And the minute that your life's mission is completed, you won't need to hang around any further. Paul trusts God's promise. God keeps his promises. So even if you don't know what destination God has in store for you, you can rest assured that he will get you there. Not you will get you there, he will get you there, regardless of the rough waters you have to sail through. Not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of your Father in heaven. So faith is not learning to stand on our own two feet. Faith is learning to rest in the character of God. That's what Paul's doing. And as Paul walks by faith, he's able to encourage other people. Look at verse 33 again. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. Now, I want you to imagine the scene. Just before this, uh, the night before this, the sailors tried to escape. Right? As soon as they realize they're getting close to land, they're taking soundings, and they're realizing that the, the, the ground is getting closer and closer to the bottom of the boat. So the sailors go ahead and make a plan that they're going to jump ship and leave everybody else on board. And Paul somehow knows about it, tells the soldiers, and the soldiers keep the sailors on board. So we've got sailors trying to escape. Then, later on, we've got the soldiers who are trying to kill the prisoners. So... All you know what is breaking loose on board this ship. And here's Paul in the midst of all of that chaos and storm saying, hey, guys, you really should eat something. Let's let's have a meal together. Why? Well, if you're going to die. Then and if you're worried about saving your life and if you're scrambling around doing other things, you really usually don't eat. Right? You see people like that in crisis all the time. Maybe they're mourning or they're, they've been in the hospital with a loved one, but they just don't take time to eat. Right? Because when you're worried about stuff, you don't eat. But if you're going to survive, if you're going to swim to shore, you need energy. And therefore, you need to eat. And Paul is confident they're going to survive. So he says, hey, guys, let's eat something. And he serves as an encouragement to everyone on the boat. Christian, when we rest by faith, when we walk by faith in the character of God, that's when we are the most useful to other people. We have no idea what happened to the 275 other people on this boat. I mean, Luke and Paul's friends, we know that they, they're, they're believers, but we don't know what, what happens to everybody else. We don't know whether they come to know Jesus or not. But it's really immaterial Right, Because what they've seen is a man walking by faith. Paul, Paul is of benefit to them even as they are about or they think they're about to perish. We are the most useful to those around us when we are resting on the character of God. So how do you know? How do I know that God will see me through the storm? Whatever, maybe you're sailing through one right now. You've, you've tossed off the tackle, uh, you've, you've jettisoned the cargo, you haven't seen the stars in weeks, 
how do you know that God is going to see you through? Well, because of what we celebrate on Friday of this week. You see, what's happening to Paul is nothing compared to what Jesus went through. Paul is thrown into the deep and survives. Because Jesus threw himself into the deep and drowned. He walked into the storm of his father's wrath. The the fury that your sin deserves and he embraced it for me and for you. He threw himself into the deep and came out on the other side so that you and I can live with confidence and grace in the midst of the storm. So that we can sing, as we did earlier, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. What is your comfort this morning? I pray that it's in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the confidence that you give us in Jesus. Lord, would you help us to not be afraid of your frowning providence, uh, but to die to self and to depend on you. Lord, would you help us to look for your smiling face even behind the frown, to see your grace at work in the howling winds and the pounding waves. And Lord, would you make us a community of Jesus followers ready to embrace the risk of dying so we might experience the grace of resurrection in greater degrees. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning, before we stand and sing, we have, uh, we have a few people who are going to be joining the church. And so, um, uh, just a few words about church membership. Uh, we take church 